0: Welcome to Part 2, Ahead of Their Time, Inspiring Women of Literature. Julie Butters continues with her dramatic reading of some of classic literature's most exciting leading ladies. America's Joan of Arc was the title given to 19th century suffrage orator, Anna E. Dickinson. As a teenager, she became famous and highly paid for speaking about the rights of women and African-Americans. Her chastisements to the more privileged members of society to amend matters of racism and social inequality remain eerily present today. In one speech from 1868, she called for racial justice. Today, we face an enemy, which saps the vitals and undermines the foundation of government, and the name of this enemy is cast. A white man is in prison, and the whole American nation cries out against the wrong. A black man is in prison, and the American nation, being the wronger, woes its peace. Can it be aught then absurd to talk of a government being a democratic government in which one-fifth of the people are ostracized and wronged? In another speech advocating women's suffrage, Dickinson entreated wealthy women to support the cause for their less fortunate sisters, if not for themselves. I hear women sitting in their beautiful homes saying, I have all the rights I want already. I want no change. There are other women in the world. Think, madam, of them. The widows who see the homes they have helped to earn, the lands they have helped to buy, swept away by an unjust decision of a dying husband and a wicked law. Have they all the rights they want? The thousands of women working 14 hours a day, earning a shilling. Who represents them? The mothers whose boys for a first offense are sent with hardened criminals to a prison, which is not a school for reform. Have they all the rights they wish. Governing this country is a duty that never will be properly discharged till men of thought take their wives and daughters on their arms and go into political meetings in somewhat of the spirit with which they would enter a church. Ah, friends, let us make sure that we are working for the temporal and spiritual good of our kind. And being thus sure, let us fight valiantly and faithfully That called at last, out of the world's heat and struggle, we can lay down our arms. One reason women like Anna E. Dickinson seemed so threatening to traditional Victorian society was that the medical profession considered women to have a limited amount of energy that was destined for motherhood. For a woman to nurture an active mind was considered inappropriate and dangerous. In her Victorian novel, Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte created a heroine who, like herself, longed for vigorous intellectual stimulation. In one passage, speaking of her restlessness at Thornfield, Jane defends women's need for activity. Now and then, when I climbed to the attic and looked out afar over sequestered fields and hill, I longed for a power of vision which might overpass that limit, which might reach the busy world, towns, regions full of life I had heard of but never seen. I desired more practical experience, more variety of character than was within my reach. My sole relief was to allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it, and to open my inward ear to a tale my imagination created, quickened with all of incident, life, fire, feeling that I had not in my actual existence. It is in vain to say human beings ought to be satisfied with tranquility. They must have action, and they will make it if they cannot find it. Women are supposed to be very calm, generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties as much as their brothers do, and it is narrow minded to say they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and embroidering bags. Bronte also defies societal expectations in matching Jane with Mr. Rochester, a man who would treat Jane as an equal and love her active mind and impassioned spirit. Jane's speech in the pivotal proposal scene of the novel, when she mistakenly believes Mr. Rochester wishes her to remain at Thornfield after he marries a woman who has treated her with scorn, perfectly illustrates her belief that equality depends not on wealth, beauty, or consequence. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Am I a machine without feelings? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain, and little that I am soulless and heartless? I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with beauty and wealth, I would make it as hard for you to leave me as it is for me to leave you. I am not speaking to you through mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit just as if we had both passed through the grave and stood at God's feet equal. As we are. Whereas Jane Eyre longs for love, Beatrice, from Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, is quite vocal about her apathy toward romance. Even though a good deal of the play's humor revolves around her and her former partner, Benedict, getting back together, Shakespeare presents Beatrice as a strong woman who enjoys her life, whether single or otherwise. She also has an impressive wit, which she unleashes on the men in her family who say she had better curb her tongue to get a husband. God send me no husband. Lord, I could not endure a husband with a beard on his face. I had rather lie in the woolen. You say, uncle, I may light on a husband that hath no beard. But what should I do with him? Dress him in my apparel and make him my waiting gentlewoman. He that hath a beard is more than a youth. And he that hath no beard is less than a man. And he that is more than a youth is not for me. And he that is less than a man, (laughs) I am not for him. No, uncle, I will not be fitted with a husband till God make men of some other metal than earth. Would it not grieve a woman to be overmastered with a piece of valiant dust? To make an account of her life to a clod of wayward marl? No, uncle, I'll none. When Beatrice finally confesses her love to Benedict, she tells him, I love you. With so much of my heart that none is left to protest. That's a sentiment that English poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, author of How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways, would have well understood. Barrett Browning published her first volume of poetry at age 20 and eventually became one of the most celebrated poets of the 19th century, so much so that her future husband, Poet Robert Browning would sometimes be referred to as Mrs. Browning's husband. Barrett Browning wrote despite ongoing health issues that sometimes kept her confined indoors for years at a time, covering subjects from religion to criticism of child labor conditions and slavery. She chronicled her courtship with Browning in Sonnets from the Portuguese, considered some of the best love poems ever written. The Brownings' marriage and their loving writings to each other are a reminder that, even in times of gender inequality, men and women can create beautiful partnerships. Sonnets from the Portuguese 43. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, and feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, my sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right, I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, Tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. If Twitter had existed in 14th century France, Christine de Pizan would have been a maven of the medium, pithily defending honorable women from trolls and haters. De Pizanne, who grew up in French court, was well-read, and one of her most famous works, The Book of the City of Ladies, was published in 1405 after she got fed up reading complaints about women in the popular books of the day, and those of the past as well. Her book is not only a brilliant defense of women's intelligence, strength, and virtue, but a rallying cry for women to become the best versions of themselves. One day, sitting in my little room, I picked up a book by a man called Matthiolus. I began to read, but the matter was neither pleasant nor of any edifying virtue. Women, he lamented, make their husbands miserable with their nagging tongues, nosiness, and duplicity. I began to wonder wherefore so many writers and philosophers believe women fully inclined to vice. Could it be true? Lord, I prayed, if thou hast made nothing that is not good, how could thou have failed in forming woman? As I sat downcast in shame, there appeared to me Three ladies, crowned in sovereign reverence. The first began to reason with me. Dear daughter, what has become of thy wit? Those who speak evil of women hurt only themselves. By God's will, my sisters and I, Lady Reason, have come to comfort thee and tell thee that you have been chosen to build a city of ladies, in which women worthy of praises shall live for ever in safety from all who would assail them. Lady Reason went on to recount diverse reasons men have spoken falsely of women, from well intentioned ignorance, to self loathing, jealousy and malice, and urged me not to adopt such views. She then spoke to me of famous women, who by their strength and virtue, proved false many arguments by philosophers who claim evil of womankind. Until her son, Saint King Louis of France came of age, said Lady Reason, Queen Blanche governed the kingdom better than had any man and later was chief of his council. The Amazons, losing the men of their country to war, Crowned as queens, the most noble ladies among them, removed one of their breasts to better carry shields and draw bows and fought victoriously against their enemies. And Sappho wrote songs and poetry with such skill that the great philosopher Plato slept with her writings beneath his pillow. After Lady Reason and her sister Righteousness had spoken of more than 100 virtuous ladies to house in our city, including many of biblical fame, their sister, Lady Justice, praised the building of the city. To complete our task, she brought to us as Queen Mary, Mother of the Son of God, who said, Lady Justice, with a good will, and by God's intent shall I dwell among women, my sisters and friends, and come to their aid. Now the Queen is lodged in our city, accompanied by many blessed saints and martyrs, and I, your servant, beseech you, dear ladies. Do not prove correct those who would accuse us of vice, but be prudent, patient, charitable, and good. For then is our city, the city of ladies, made perfect. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for listening stop by again.